We are in week two of our series titled Immeasurably More. In this series, we are kind of just asking ourselves, what is God calling us to do over the next five years as a church? And so we're going to be looking at some short-term goals, um, some short-term adjustments, some things that we are planning over the summer that we're going to launch in the fall. Uh, We're going to be looking at some longer-term goals. You know, what is God calling us to do over the next five years? And then how can we as a whole church body kind of rise up to help accomplish some of these goals? So this is a super exciting series. It is such a fun series. Uh, I love vision casting. Uh, You know, it gets me so excited. Um, And I love all of you who can tell me to calm down a little bit. And here's all the nuts and bolts. Here are the pieces of the puzzle that you're going to need to accomplish the whole thing. I'm really good at seeing the whole puzzle, the pieces. So I need you guys. We need, we're, we're a body. We're working together. We're partnering. This is good, isn't it? It's good stuff. Um, if you were with us last week, you know that Dave Ritter came and talked to us about uh, what we discovered in this vision meeting that we had back in January. We, we, we got together as a staff and elder team, and we came together to, to kind of talk about what God is calling us to do over uh, the next five years as a church. And, and he mentioned last week, if you were with us or you listened to the message online uh, or through subscribing to our podcast or whatever means you did that, um, that we are hoping to raise our budget a pretty significant amount um, throughout the next several weeks uh, as we prepare for, for July so that we can hire, is what he said, a full-time pastor. And I want to clarify one thing really quick. Um, we are not intending to hire a full-time pastor. Uh, the amount of money that he said we want to raise, which is true, we want to raise our budget to about $350,000, is not going to be adequate to hire a full-time pastor. We don't believe um, that's what God is calling us to do. We are going to hire a part-time position, however. And then we're also going to, to bolster the, the support we give to Treehouse, the youth program that, that is housed here at Restoration Church. And so uh, beyond that, we want to we wanna empower more missional endeavors uh, locally and globally as well. And so we're going to be raising funds to increase our budget as a whole so that we can accomplish some of the things that God is calling us to accomplish. But I do want to clarify that we are not intending to hire a full-time uh, person, as David mentioned last week. But we're going to talk way more about this in the coming weeks, a lot more about this in the coming weeks. It's all going to be laid out for you. We're going to try to be very crystal clear on everything that is going on. And speaking of the coming weeks, I mentioned originally that this series was only going to be four weeks, and then I told you that I had lied to you. You know, I, I don't do that often, but, you know, every now and then I, I tend to lie to you. Uh, it's, I said last week it's going to be a five-week series, and I'm lying to you again. It's not going to be five weeks. We're going to push it to seven weeks, in part because this is exciting, right? This is good stuff. Oh, too much, and there's way too much to say. There's way too much to say. God is calling us to do too much. Uh, not too much. Did I just say that? I didn't just say that, did I? No, no. Immeasurably more, right? Yes. We serve a God who wants to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And so we got we to gotta offer bold prayers. We got to dream big dreams. Um, but we'll be talking all about all this over the next, I guess, five weeks beyond, because we've already done two here, so five weeks. Um, but here's, here's another reason why we're, we're doing this uh, in seven weeks. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the average church attendance in America is 2.5 Sundays per month. So that just means that on any, you know, given month, the average churchgoer, the person who says, yeah, I'm a churchgoer, I go to church, I'm not just a Christmas and Easter type of churchgoer, I'm a regular churchgoer, they will find their way into their home church roughly 2.5 Sundays a month. What does that 0.5 mean? Between two and three Sundays a month on average, okay? But that is in America as a whole. We are not in America. We are in the beautiful Northeast. We are in America. Um, but the Northeast of America is a, is a unique population of the country. One of the reasons Emily and I came this direction to plant Restoration Church was because the Northeast is a unique population of the country. We'll talk more about that over the coming weeks as well. But the average churchgoer in the Northeast attends church, drumroll please, 1.6 Sundays a month. So there's a thing, if we do a, uh, a three-week series, for instance, um, the average person may get to one of those, 
If we do a four-week series, the average person may get to one, maybe two of those. And so we want to have this really exciting conversation over the span of seven weeks because we hope we want to hit, we, we hit the entire population. Isn't it odd? Like, if you think about it, like, we, we have roughly 325 people here on a Sunday morning uh, on, on average. <laughs> Next week, we might have it a completely different 325 people here. That's just the way it works, right? With church attendance, it's like you're, you're never going to get the same crowd um, on Sunday morning. It's just, it's just the way it is. I'm not entirely sure if this stat is true of Restoration Church. I hope that we're higher than that because I believe what we do here is important. Um, do I want you here every single Sunday? Absolutely. Uh, would I love for this statistic to change, specifically here at Restoration? Absolutely. Do I think what we do here is important? Yes. Would I love for everyone to prioritize community within this body over their sporting events and over their birthday parties and over their lazy Sunday mornings? Yes, absolutely. I would love that. Would I love for us to engage each other and to learn how to love like God has loved us and to learn to be more human as we tread upon this earth? Absolutely, and I believe that we can do that here on Sunday mornings. And so I'm not sure this is necessarily true of us, but I hope that we can continue to value what we do here on Sunday mornings. And so we're going to do it in seven weeks instead of four. So let me begin by asking a really, really important question. I've already kind of teased out this question a little bit. Think back to the last four to six weeks of your life. Maybe, you know, ever since Easter-ish, that era, okay? Since we really began talking about this series and how God is moving us and what God wants to do in us and what God wants to do through us to reach our community, think back about that. Have you found that the past six weeks have been abnormally hard? I I don't know, like just something out of the ordinary has come up to make it a more frustrating, more stressful, may, more anxious time for you? The last, the last service, um, I got tons of head nods and tons of raised hands. Um, I, I would imagine it's probably true of this community as well. But think back to the last, you know, four to six weeks, not only within you and your household, but maybe within your loved ones and the people that you love the most. Maybe there's been job loss or job frustration. Financial difficulties that come along with it, you know, something is breaking in your home unexpectedly and you're like, why? This has last me 15 years. Why all of a sudden is it breaking now? Maybe the medical bills are piling up or cars are breaking down. Maybe you're just wondering, how am I going to get food on my table and clothes on my kids' backs? Maybe there's just this extra stress and anxiety from all that. Maybe you have insurance, right? But like the house is still falling apart and it's crazy, and you don't know what you're going to do about it, and you have insurance, but the car accident, and you have insurance, but the medical, and you have insurance, yes, and that's a safety net, but still, it's so stressful, and it's so hard. Or what about health concerns? You know, maybe you received a diagnosis that was unfavorable, or maybe you just wish there was a diagnosis, and you have no idea what's going on, and you just wish the doctors could give you answers. Maybe there's just additional hospital stays that are abnormal. Maybe you're experiencing some relational problems. Maybe your marriage has been frustrated. Maybe there's some parent-child relationships that seemed more strained than usual. Maybe there's a relationship with your ex, you know, that is just like all of a sudden going haywire. Maybe there's friends within your lives that seem to be turning on you, and you don't know why, and you don't know why they're, they're acting this way towards you. Or maybe there's some interpersonal, like there's this, some depression or loneliness, and you're wondering what your purpose is, and you're wondering what your meaning is. Here's the thing, Emily and I do a lot of counseling. And I'm, you know, you need to know that Emily um, is a rock star around here. I'm going to puff her up. She's right there, you know, but like I can, I can promote her a little bit. Yeah, give her an applause. She deserves it. She, um, 
she receives just as many texts and emails and phone calls about your struggles as I do. You know, she, she may not have the, the title of pastor, but she certainly serves in that role in a lot of regards. It's just the truth. Like, I receive phone calls and texts and emails all the time from you, and I love that, right? Because I love to walk with this congregation through life, and she does the same. And over the last six weeks, we have received more over the last six weeks from, from you, which, again, we love. We love to walk with you through these things. We have received more over the last six weeks than we have over the last year. And why? Like, like why is life so hard for so many right now? I don't want to take all the credit for all the challenges in your life. Yeah, good. I'm glad I got a chuckle out of that because I don't want to take all of the credit for all of the challenges in your life. But I do believe that there is a correlation between God's work and your struggle. And there's a correlation between God's work and my struggle. That when I am doing what God has called me to do, then I should expect hardships. There's a tendency, I think, when life is hard to ask questions, right? Isn't that only natural? Most people's questions, if they believe in God in the midst of pain and hardships, branch off in one of few directions. We might ask, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? I mean, that's a positive approach to the pain and the struggle that we experience. Right? God, what are you trying to teach me here? We might ask, God, why are you doing this? We might ask, God, where are you in the midst of all this? Or we might ask, God, are you even good? Because certainly a good God who is all-powerful should be able to do something about my situation that is challenging and burdensome and painful right now. And so what is the logic that most people conclude? Certainly if my life is going bad, that God either doesn't love me or he has no power or he doesn't care or he's not capable of doing anything about my situation. That's the logic that most people draw to. And I wish there was an easy answer to this very, very challenging question. And certainly anything I say this morning is only going to be an introduction to a much larger conversation that needs to be had. But here are a few, a few ideas to get us started before I address one big point um, that we're going to camp out on uh, for the rest of the morning. First, we have a tendency to equate our life experience with God's goodness. Meaning that when life is bad, God must not care about me. And when life is good, then perhaps God is good. But really, I think if we're honest with ourselves, when life is really good, we tend to forget about God. He kind of becomes an afterthought. But when, what we find over and over again in Scripture is that God's thoughts towards us are not reflected in what happens to us. So John, one of the very first uh, followers of Jesus, right? He was chased down by the Romans because as a follower of Jesus, they wanted to eradicate this, this new movement from the face of the earth. And so they pursued all of the followers of Jesus. So John was one of these followers of Jesus who was pursued and the Romans eventually got a hold of him. They threw John into a pot of boiling oil and that didn't kill him. And so they excommunicated him to an island to get rid of him so that he would not do any more damage within the Roman world. Eventually he was released, but not before seeing all of his friends die horrible deaths. And I mean like his friends were crucified. Some of them were even crucified upside down. Some of them had their heads chopped off. Several of them were stoned to death. Um, several of them were thrown off of the temple mount. They just, you know, dragged his friends to a cliff and threw them off the edge. Um, several of them had their hair doused in oil and lit on fire so that they would light up the Colosseum so that they could throw more of his friends into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. This was John's experience as a follower of Jesus in the first century. This was the life of the follower of Jesus in the first century. 
See, once he committed his life to following Jesus, all he knew was pain and struggle and running for his life. And yet, late in his life, as he's reflecting on who God is and God's character in light of the life that he had lived and the experiences that he has had, and not only what he has faced in this life, but what his friends have faced in this life, here is what he writes. He writes three of the most powerful words, I think, in all of Scripture. God is love. How could John write this after experiencing everything that he experienced and seeing all that he had seen? How could he write God as love? Because God's thoughts and God's actions towards us are not reflected in what's happening to us. Second, isn't it odd that when we ask the question of why would God, why would a good God allow bad things to happen? I mean, that may be the reason that you stayed away from Christianity for so long. That may be the reason that you still kind of stiff-arm Christianity. That may be the reason that you're still hesitant to fully embrace the Christian faith. That may be the reason that your coworker or your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your child is keeping an arm's length from Christianity. That why would a good God? I cannot reconcile what is happening in the world, the pain, the suffering, the genocide, all the hurt that is going on, the war that is going on in the world. I cannot reconcile that with this. But isn't it odd that when we ask this question of why would a good God allow bad things to happen, that we focus on all of the bad that is out there instead of the bad that's in here? Because, I mean, come on, have you guys ever done anything bad? I mean, not Restoration Church, right? I mean, come on, like, have you guys ever done anything bad? Thank you, Emily. <laughs> Amen, Emily, praise. Yeah, no. Uh, you guys ever done anything bad? Yeah, you guys ever thought anything bad? We all have, right? We're not, we're not immune to that. It's what makes the Christian faith and the grace of God so beautiful, in fact, isn't it? But when people wrestle with this question of a good God in response to evil, it's always the evil out there. It's never the evil in here. You know, I've never a- heard anybody ask the question, how could a good God allow me to happen? Or, or if God were good, wouldn't he have done something about me by now? And when you start to ask this question, when you start to realize the evil within yourself, then you are one step closer to the love of God because you are evil. And yet in spite of your evil, did not God come in pursuit of you? Didn't God chase you down, not to stamp you out, not to beat you down, not to condemn you, but he chased you down and pursued you to embrace you and to forgive you? There's so much more that could and should be said about this. But I want to say one more thing, and here's where I want to camp out for a few minutes, and here's where we're going this morning. So John, the same John that I referenced earlier who had been excommunicated uh, to that island by the Romans, the same one who wrote that God is love, this same John, while he was on that island under Roman imprisonment, he received a vision that he documented and he wrote down, and we call it Revelation. He caught a glimpse behind the curtain that separates heaven from earth, and he quickly learned though he knew this already, that there is a war going on in the heavens. That there is something taking place in the heavens that is greatly impacting the earth. Now, Revelation is exceptionally hard to interpret. I'm not going to minimize the fact that it's exceptionally hard to interpret, but at one point in this vision, he sees a dragon fighting with a woman. 
And we already learned that the dragon uh, represents Satan in this uh, vision that he has. And we've already learned that the woman represents the faithful people of God, who ultimately would birth the Messiah and ultimately would birth then the church, right? The faithful people of God. And here's what John says in regards to what he's seen. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. The offspring then being those who keep God's commands, those who hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So we are the offspring then who the Satan, the dragon, is now enraged. He's enraged that he's lost the war, and now we are the ones that he is attacking. And for some of you, this may be an aha moment. Maybe you've never realized this, but as a follower of Jesus, there is a target on your back. Do you guys get that? If you claim to follow Jesus, there is a target on your back, and not only on your back, but on your marriage's back, and and on the back of your kids, and on the backs of the people that you love the most. There is a target on your back. And the point of this is that because Jesus stands victorious over sin and death and the dragon, Satan is enraged. He knows he is lost. And so in one last act of anger towards God, he is going to do his absolute worst to the people who claim his name. He can't touch Jesus, right? He's tried to touch Jesus. He's killed Jesus. Jesus won. Jesus stands victorious. He can't do anything about that, and so he is going to go after the Jesus people. He is coming after his church. Did you guys know that our lives as followers of Jesus are caught up in a cosmic battle? We can't necessarily see this battle, but we are greatly affected by it. For some of you, this is new news, and for some of you, this sounds like science fiction. But I'll get to the reality of it in just a minute. For some of you, you're being reminded of this, and I hope that this will inspire us to re-engage the battle because there are only two types of people in the midst of war. There are those who are fighting and those who are not. There are those who are prepared for it and those who are not. There are those who are armored and equipped, and there are those who are not. And so if you recognize and you realize and you believe that we are in a war, what position are you going to take? Ask anybody who's ever seen war what the likelihood of survival is for those who refuse to pay attention, for for those who refuse to be equipped, for those who refuse to armor themselves and refuse to stand guard is, and they'll tell you it's next to nothing. So Paul, the one who wrote half the New Testament, originally Paul did everything in his power to stamp out Christianity. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who stoned Christians and wanted to do everything in his power to rid the world of Christianity. Eventually, he had this radical conversion experience, and then he gave his life to serving Christ and expanding God's gospel and his kingdom throughout the Mediterranean world, and he planted churches all over the place. He understood better than most of us that this world is full of pain and tragedy and wickedness and manipulation, and every time this evil is present, it solidifies the evidence of a battle taking place in the heavenly realms. And he tells us this, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So notice just a few things about what Paul is saying here. Um, He says, first, the battle is in the heavenly realms. But Paul is telling us to put on the armor. Does that seem odd to anybody? The battle is in the heavens, and yet we are the ones who must put on the armor. We are at war, in other words. We are part of this battle. It affects us, and so we must be prepared for it. The fact that Paul is telling his readers to put on the armor means that we're, 
at war, that the war is here, it's on our land, it's in our territory. This war is not just in the heavens, not affecting the world we live in. No, it is here affecting everything that we do as followers of Jesus. You see, the realm of God, his space and our space and our realm, they interact and they overlap in all sorts of mysterious ways. The, the war is taking place in the heavens, but it bleeds into our experience all the time. Therefore, he says, second, though our battle might be against the rulers and authorities and powers of darkness and forces of evil rather than against flesh and blood, the reality is that the forces of power utilize flesh and blood to do their bidding. And so Paul, right, when he was being stoned, when people were trying to kill him, to stone him, to rid him from the face of the earth, the flesh and blood throwing those rocks, they were a real problem. The flesh and blood were a real problem. But the real problem was the motivation of hatred and evil that convinced those people to throw those stones. When Paul was being spat on and slandered and cursed by Jewish and Roman opponents, the flesh and blood that created that spit and formed those words, they were real problems. But it was the motivation of arrogance and the hard-heartedness and the anger and the evil. These were the deeper problems motivated by the powers of the evil one. And isn't the same with us when we gossip and when we slander, when we judge? Isn't it the same with us? If there's a deeper problem within us, the way we treat each other with our flesh and blood hurts. But there is something deeper within us that is motivated by the powers of evil. When we murder someone, the flesh and blood that held the gun and pulled the trigger, that's a real problem. But the deeper problem is the heart full of hatred that would entice someone to do such a thing. See, Paul is trying to help us see past the veneer that is in front of us. The veneer of this physical world. And he wants us to see past it into the true source of our problems. That we, in our earthly realm, are taking part in a heavenly battle, and what we do with our flesh and blood are either motivated by the powers of Satan or the powers of God. And because this is the case, Paul pleads with his readers to put on God's armor. Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, when it comes, it may not be on your doorstep today, but when it comes— because some, some of you are thinking, like, Ross, like, this whole evil thing, like, man, I'm not, I'm not in that last, like, abnormally hard. Man, the last, six of my, the last six weeks of my life have been great. Anybody in that camp? Praise the Lord if you're in that camp, right? Man, God's favor, God's blessing upon you, awesome. Like, we love that. Life is great. If this is war, you're thinking, this is not a very severe war. Nothing is very threatening. I'm doing all right. Life is good. Life is golden. I just paid off the mortgage. I'm in great health. So is my family and my kids. They're succeeding in life. We just built the addition on our home that we had been planning for 20 years. We just bought the new home. We just moved into the new home. We just planned the vacation or we just got back from vacation. We just got married. We're marital bliss. We're on our honeymoon. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary and we never loved each other more. I... I have an awesome church. Emily totally missed that. I do. I love Emily dearly, though. In 25, we're celebrating 15 years this summer. Is that cool? Yay. Marital bliss, right. 
Um, I have an awesome church. I have tons of friends. I love Jesus. Life is wonderful. Amen. So for those of you who have the sun shining upon you, and life is cheerful, and life is wonderful, let me just ask you a couple questions. How long does it take for life to flip upside down? A second. It's a blink of an eye. It's a phone call. That's right. You can't plan it. Nobody expects to wake up with chest pain. Nobody expects to get into the car accident while they're out running errands. Nobody expects to get fired from their job. Nobody expects or plans to leave the candle burning that eventually burns down the house and all of your memories. Nobody expects their spouse to abandon them, and yet it happens in the blink of an eye. It happens. And so my next question, when then should you prepare for war? If you know the war is coming, does it make sense to prepare, to train, to equip the soldiers, to build the defense when the bullets start flying? Is that when you want to start preparing? No, you prepare in times of peace. You prepare when it's calm. So, what, so that when the door is on your doorsteps, you're prepared for it. My friends, the day of evil is coming. Peter, another one of Jesus' very first followers, he wrote this to his audience. He said, be on your guard. Why, why Peter? Why should I be on my guard? Why should I be alert? Why should I pay attention? Why should I be ready? Why should I care? Because everything is great. Everything is fine, Peter. No, be on your guard and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Because he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Because the devil, the Satan, the dragon, he is enraged. And he is doing everything in his power to tear apart the church of Jesus Christ. And all those who claim the name of Jesus. And so how do we prepare? We put on the armor of God, Paul says, so that you may able to be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Be prepared because when you're confronted with evil and struggle and pain and everything in your life seems to go sideways because you are under attack, you'll be able to stand amidst the trial rather than buckling under its pressure. Well, how so, Paul? Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And some of you are thinking, that's really all well and good, Paul, but these are just a bunch of Christian words that don't make any sense to me. And though a lot could and should be said about this, I just want to say, two things. First, you need to recognize that this is God's armor. That this is God's equipment. These are not just things that we try really hard to do and conjure up within ourselves and try really hard. This is God's armor being placed upon you. That we are dependent upon God's armor to equip us to fight this battle. Second, notice that the armor is in the front. All the armor that is given us in this list is all helping us move forward. It's all in the front. It's there to protect us in the midst of battle, and it will do its job, right? It will protect us if we stay engaged. 
It's, it's when we turn aside, and it's when we turn around, and it's when we flee that the armor can no longer do its work for us. You know, I teach, um, I, I, teach I, I also coach, right? Coaching is another word for teaching. I, t- I coach baseball um, to, my, to my boys. And when I coach the catchers how to catch, so many of them, like as seven-year-olds, I was just doing this like a month ago with, um, with, with Luke's team, and I was trying to teach them how to catch. And so many of them, when they see the ball coming at them, they're, they're, their inclination is to turn in, in fear and to protect themselves. They, they kind of curl up into a ball, and they turn around, and the ball hits them in the rib cage, And they say, ow! And I'm like, yeah, why did you turn? Why did you turn away? You have the armor in the front. And so what do we do? We take these kids, and we throw them against the wall, and all the coaches throw baseballs at them. Just like, in, just like in the Mighty Ducks. And it hits their helmet, and they're like, wow, that didn't hurt. I'm like, yeah, because you have a helmet on. Oh, yeah, it didn't hit. It hit me in the chest. It didn't hurt. Yeah, because you have a chest protector on. If you turn to the side in fear and in trepidation and, and to run away, the ball is going to hit you in the ribcage, and it's going to hurt. Because you don't have armor on the sides, and you don't have armor on the back. And it's the same with the armor of God, my friends. If you stay engaged in the battle, the protection will do its work. The armor will protect you. It's when do you flee in fear, in temptation, in sin, in doubt, in disbelief. That is when the fiery arrows of the evil one will strike you down. And so in the midst of your trial and pain and struggle and temptation, you need to keep crying out. You need to keep your faith. You need to stay engaged. You need to lean on the truth. You need to keep seeking pace. You need to stay engaged. And then he says you need to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And see, prayer is a major weapon in our fight against the schemes of the evil one. For many reasons, the least of them being that prayer ties us to and admits dependence on the God of power and resource. And so if this is God's armor that we are putting on, then we must rely on God to help us fight this battle. To provide us with the resources we need to engage this battle. And so when John peered behind the curtain in Revelation and saw the war taking place firsthand, he noticed this, this really interesting uh, passage in chapter 8 of Revelation. He said, who had, uh, he, he noticed this golden, this, this angel who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with a fire from the altar, and he hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So all of the prayers that are offered to God are stored up on the altar in God's throne room, is the image that we get. And it is these prayers that are burned along with the ensigns that are put into this censer that are cast to the earth to begin the judgment of evil. Immediately following this passage in Revelation is the seven trumpets where all of God's judgment upon evil and chaos is unleashed upon the earth. And so the role that prayer plays in Revelation, it's so fascinating, but we're, t- we're told on several accounts that, that our prayers are essentially the weapons that unleash God's judgment of evil. And that's a powerful realization that our prayers are weapons in the spiritual battle. 
And so Paul tells us back in Ephesians 6 that we have three weapons at our disposal. We have the word of God, we have prayer, and we have the gospel. He concludes this section on the spiritual war that he's engaged in by, saying, by, by asking for prayer. He says, pray also for me, that whatever I speak, words may be given me, so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So we have, we have the word of God, the sword of the spirit in our hand. We have prayer, and we have the declaration of the gospel. And so what's the point of all this? And how does it tie in to this series on where we're going over the next five years? Here's the thing. We are a growing church in a region where few churches grow. Do you guys get that? It's, it's odd. Um, you know, we came from the land of megachurches in Minnesota. And, and churches thrive and they grow rapidly out there. And we are in a land where few churches grow and thrive and there are very few healthy churches. They certainly exist, don't get me wrong, and we, and we praise God for them, but um, we are a growing church in a region that doesn't grow churches very well. And I believe that fact that we're reclaiming land that Satan thought he'd won is ticking him off. That, that he's enraged at what we are doing, right? He's going after the people who are doing something in God's name, and we are a church that is doing that. And the reason we as a church over the last six weeks, I think, are experiencing craziness in our personal lives and in our corporate lives Beyond what is normal, right? We are experiencing this abnormal craziness is in part because we're at war. And he is doing everything to dissuade you and discourage you and irritate you so that he might devour you. But if you want to stand victorious, then become like the one who is victorious. Do not become lazy, in other words, of your pursuit of Jesus. And so the weapons that we have at our disposal, what God's promises in his word, the word of God. We have prayer and we have the preaching of the gospel. And so look at Jesus, right? He was the one who stood victorious. He, he knew God's word inside and out. So when Satan came to him to tempt him, he had God's word ready at the helm as a sword against the ways and the oppression and the opposition of the evil one. He went away constantly to be praying for God's will to be done in his life, but also for his people that he knew were engaged in the battle. And he declared the gospel, the fullness of both truth and grace, constantly. And so for the short, short-term components of our vision, what we're going to be focusing on over the next several months as we launch into the fall, kind of falls into some of these categories. Some of the things that we're going to be introducing over the next several weeks as we talk about this are new ways to help you engage the word of God and to know his promises. But for the time being, you know, before we get to how we're going to do that specifically, um, just start reading the Bible. Like, if you don't have a Bible, tell me. I will give you one of the 19 I have on my shelf or the 25 we have in the back. If you do not have the word of God, then tell me. I will gladly celebrate with you as you begin to read it. And you're like, where do I start? Start in the Gospel of John. Immerse yourself in the life and the teachings of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And then when you're done with John, go through John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. When you get to the end, then come and find me, and I'll tell you where to go next. But start in John's Gospel. Start reading. Five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, a chapter a day, whatever it may be. Just start reading the Bible. We're also going to introduce some ways to help you pray. First, if you haven't already taken one of these Restoration Church bands home, um, I really encourage you to do that because this is just a great reminder 
Something that is constantly upon your wrist, right? I, I look at this. I feel it upon me. And what does it prompt me to do? It prompts me to pray for Emily and for my kids and for you guys who I know are going through some stuff. And it prays for our vision and what God is calling us to do as a church and just for our community. I cry out for the apathy I see within our community all the time. I look at my wrist and I see this and I'm like, you know what? We live in a world that just doesn't care about Jesus anymore. We live in a post-Christian region of the country and they just don't care and they're apathetic and they could care less about me telling them about Jesus. They don't think they need it. They're fine. And so I cry out every time I look at my wrist. I say, God, what are you doing in this community? Do something in this community. Soften hearts, open minds, do it through us. Whatever you do, God, I cry out for a community all the time. And so if you do not have one of these, as a reminder that we need to be a church crying out, then grab one. They're available at the Next Step kiosk. Wear it. It's also got a great reminder that we are to love one another the same way that God through Jesus has loved us. And so that's just a plus right there, right? Plus it's got our logo wrapped around the inside. So it's like a cool fashionable accessory. So guys, get a hold of these, all right? Um, Second, for those of you who are on Facebook, we are starting uh, this week a restoration prayer group. Um, and so if you want just an interactive place to go, if you have prayer requests, if you're on Facebook, then go. Uh, we, can, we can share a prayer request there, but we can also say that we're praying for each other. Uh, we can also share what God is doing to answer prayers, you know? So it's just, a, it's a great interactive way to constantly be in prayer with one another. Also, we have an email address. I don't know, we don't advertise this very often. We should do it more, but we have prayer at restorationchurchpa.org. If you um, submit a prayer request there, it'll come to me and the elders and the staff, and we'll be in prayer for whatever you may need. Um, on the back of the connection card and the seat back in front of you, on the back of that, this is a, t- is a place for you to write any prayer requests you have. Pro- drop it in the offering plate as it comes by. We'll be happy to pray for you there as well. Um, you may not know this, but on Wednesdays, there is a group of ladies, and it's only ladies, they welcome men as well, uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, who come into this building every single Wednesday, and they walk through this place praying for it and interceding for it, praying for you and the concerns and the needs they know that you have. And so if you want to join them or if you want them to be praying for anything, um, every Wednesday at 10 o'clock, they do that. So super cool. I love that. We're also going to introduce new ways of reaching our community with the gospel. And so Paul asked for prayer so that he might proclaim the gospel fearlessly as he should. And that should be convicting to all of us, I think, right? Preaching the gospel as he should and to do so boldly and to do so fearlessly. Wow. So we are working on some new initiatives that will help us engage our community in relevant ways that will also serve as opportunities to share the truth and the grace of God as well. And then lastly, we are working on some new ways to connect as a church body. Because here's the reality. If you are doing this war alone, then you're going to lose. One of the tricks I think that Satan is, is so cunning at is that he wants to isolate you. He wants to make you feel lonely. He wants to make you feel isolated because in isolation, he can attack. But if you have a, a group of brothers and sisters, if you have people who care for you and love you and are willing to surround you and uplift you and carry you and care for you in the midst of your trial and your struggle, then you will succeed through whatever you are going through. And so new ways to connect are going to be introduced in the fall as well. And so I want to invite the band forward, and we're going to uh, reflect on this as we sing one final song together this morning. But here's the thing. We, got, we are at war, all right? And we're ticking Satan off. And he is a fierce enemy looking for people to devour. And so we as a church and as individuals can either stay engaged or we can disengage and run away. But my friends, if we disengage, if we do not pray, if, pray, if we are not in our word, if we are not becoming more like Jesus, if we are not connecting in community, if we are not doing all that we can to fight this war with the weapons at our disposal, if we turn, if we flee, if we run, we will lose. 
And not only us, but our community will lose. And so my friends, I want to be a church engaged. Knowing what is in front of us and knowing the reality of the war that has taken place, I want to be a church engaged. And so will you do this with me? Will you pray with me? Will you become a, a church praying and then praying together. We're going we're gonna to introduce some prayer services as well um, in light of this, some prayer and worship services more consistently. Um, can we commit to being in God's word and knowing who God is and who Jesus is is revealed in scripture? Can we commit to being a people who don't like beat the gospel over our friends' heads but do it in a way that is loving and full of truth? And we're going to train you and teach you on how to do that. And then can we be a community that is connecting with one another, uplifting each other, encouraging each other so that we can fight this war well? Can we do that? Can we agree to do that? Guys, this is where it begins. This is ground zero. Yeah, we're going to talk about budget. Yeah, we're going to talk about staff structure. Yeah, we're going to talk about this building and what we plan to do with it. But this is where this series begins. This is the foundation. This is where we must launch from. We must be a people praying. Amen? Amen.